Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the working week. Here we are at Newsbusters plotting it all out. Tonight, Chris Cuomo debuts again. It sounds like the return of the shark in Jaws or something. But yes, Nick Fondacaro, because we're a little sick like this, is all like, oh, Cuomo, Target, get to start all over again. Maybe his show will be less Democrat than it was on CNN. I don't know. It does seem to me that if News Nation was trying to present itself as the, the channel that's not opinion, you don't put on Chris Cuomo. But that's just me. All right, today I wanted to discuss race. There it was, my Washington Post magazine, October 2. And the cover reads, Why I'm leaving America as a black woman, I want freedom from oppression. So I'm finally plotting my exit by Deneen L. Brown. Well, Deneen Brown's been at the Washington Post for a long time, maybe as long as I've been at the Media Research Center. Um, and basically, she's leaving for Africa. The article begins in larger type. The mouth of the Volta River in Ghana seems to be swelling with the stories of my people. By day, the river, black and thick, runs south, dumping its fresh water into the Gulf of Guinea and eventually the Atlantic Ocean, where it churns in a powerful vortex. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, she's excited to move to Ghana I believe this river carries the stories of my enslaved African ancestors who may have been transported down its waterway hundreds of years ago into waiting boats anchored out at sea before making the transatlantic voyage as human cargo. She adds, in December 2021, I jumped on an airplane to reconnect with the continent and to explore Ghana as a potential place to live and plant new roots. It was a time when America seemed to be splintering, with state laws banning the teaching of critical race theory, dash, dash, effectively barring the teaching of historical truths, dash, dash, and constant warnings about real dangers to democracy and the possibility of a new civil war. Yes, when you're worried about civil war and the end of democracy, move to Africa. Eleven months earlier, she says, I had watched as insurrectionists attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, scaling walls, beating police officers with American flags. Wait, she's pro-police officer now? As you'll find out, I mean, this, this article very shortly turns into all the places police have killed black people. We'll get into that. The insurrectionists were trampling through a building built by enslaved black people. Democracy appeared to be imploding, and the country seemed to be increasingly dangerous for black people, although racist terror was embedded in the fabric of American history and is not a new phenomenon. Okay. This we know. I saw something the other day. NPR was doing a story on cold cases of the civil rights movement where black kids or black adults were just shot by segregationists. No one was ever charged. That's just horrific. You know, and digging that stuff up sounds like an important mission. So, you know, this whole notion that conservatives, when they 
reject critical race theory, that they're rejecting the history of America. That's not true. What basically the main objection to critical race theory is you're going to go in there and say, all right, all you white kids, you should all feel bad about yourselves. You're all benefiting from systemic racism. That's the kind of thing where it's like we all understand. And what happens in that is you don't get to argue back. Now, I'm the kind of kid that when I was in school, I probably would have argued back. And you knew at the time that you were always in danger of perhaps damaging your grade. Now, you can actually do this in a way that's respectful of your teacher. I think that's important. You know, I'm not saying, excuse me, Mr. Asshat. You know, that's, I'm not saying being disrespectful, but just to actually pose a critical question. So Deneen Brown then lists Amadou Diallo was shot in New York by cops. Police shot, saw, shot Sean Bell. Transit police shot Oscar Grant in Oakland. Michael Brown was fatally shot by a police officer. We don't need any context. In 2020, George Floyd was murdered. Breonna Taylor was fatally shot. This all makes her want to go back to Africa. We don't ask ourselves the question, are there never shootings in Ghana? Are there never shootings by police in Ghana? What is the crime rate in Ghana? Well, we're not going to explain that. It becomes quite clear that what makes Deneen Brown happy is she wants to be with her people. She wants to live somewhere where almost everyone is black. And if that's what you want to do, that's fine with you. But again, this does read like one of those things where it's like, America stinks. I'm going to go to a better place. Is it really better? What's interesting about this, and one of the reasons I bring this up today is, yes, she's a journalist. She brings this whole color, so to speak, into her journalism. She she boasts as a reporter for more than 35 years. I watched, researched, and wrote with a sense of journalistic distance while consuming the emotions of every tragedy. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't think Washington Post reporters bury or distance themselves. I mean, maybe they used to try harder. I don't think that's the case now. There are, as she starts talking about the police killing of Elijah McLean in Colorado, a peace-loving vegetarian who played his violin to shelter cats, pleading for police to stop hurting him. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting case. You know, that's maybe the most sympathetic case you could possibly find. But left unsaid in this, of course, the Washington Post has done the math in terms of how many black people are killed by police, how many are armed, how many are unarmed. And everyone's regrettable, but that's not to say that every one of them is unjustified. And, you know, what's ironic about all this, and I think conservatives would say this to anyone, and that is, now why don't we compare the number of black Americans killed by police to the number of black Americans killed by other black Americans? This is something Deneen Brown of the Washington Post isn't ready to take on here. Then she says, One night while on my trip to Ghana, my driver made a U-turn in traffic and was stopped by a police officer. My stomach dropped. It was the middle of the night and I was terrified. I watched as the driver got out of the car, walked toward the officer standing on the side of the road. The driver motioned to the officer, talking with his hands, explaining he was lost and apologized for making the U-turn. 
The officer listened. After pause, the officer said, I forgive you. Go about your way. So she says, I want this kind of freedom to live in a country where traffic stops end peacefully. I want the ability to move among people who look like me. I want to engage in intellectual debates without having to explain the history of this country's racism. This sounds to me like having a discussion with non-black people, right? I don't want to debate you. I don't want to explain racism to you. You don't get it. Then she says, I know no place is perfect, but I want to live in a country where racism is not a constant threat, which is why I have decided to eventually leave America. Yes, racism is a constant threat in America. This is later on, on, on page 18 here. This is all in big, huge text. So if you don't want to read the whole article, you get to say she wants the ability to move among people who look like me and not have to explain the country's racism. Then Deneen Brown, a, a few paragraphs down, says, I never really felt at home in America, although I was born here and grew up in Kansas and Oklahoma in the midst of wheat fields. As a child, I climbed trees, wrote poetry, devoured books, and dreamed of faraway places. I read National Geographic magazines in the basement of the little white house on Ash Street. I consumed the set of encyclopedias my mother bought. Ah, see, now we have something in common. This sounds like me as a kid. I like to, to read. I devoured books, and I devoured the, the World Book Encyclopedia. I was a little geek, too. Deneen Brown says, I look back now and realize I was a child in the middle of a social revolution. I grew up in the black power movement, coming on the tail end of the civil rights movement. I wore bell bottoms, cut my hair into a short afro, and danced to Aretha Franklin's respect. I cut the rug on the gold shag carpet in our living room and sang James Brown's, Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. My parents never told me what America thought of me or their own personal histories with race, racism, and racists. It was a coping mechanism used by so many black parents across America. Instead, they showed me I was loved. In our family's black and white photos, my sister and I are perfectly groomed, starched dresses, ribbons in our hair, and we are smiling. My mother constantly told me, Nini, you are beautiful. You are smart. You can do anything. You can be anything you want to be. That's nice. You know, I think that's what all parents want to tell their children. And maybe, it, you know, she thinks that's a more painful thing for black parents to say. Because they don't always feel like they can be anything they want to be. You know, and they only have recent examples for to say, you can be president. Okay. Now you can say you can be president. Now you can say to a black woman that you could be a justice on the Supreme Court. And this is where it gets interesting, where she talks about how she stumbled into journalism in college. During my subsequent decades as a journalist, my goal has been to humanize black people, capturing their ordinary and extraordinary lives. As a reporter in D.C., I thought of myself as, quote, a reporting anthropologist, unquote, I sought to capture the dialogue, rhythm, and cadence of what was then known as Chocolate City. The underlying questions driving my reporting were, why did racism persist in a country that claimed it believed in equality and freedom? Why were black people still suffering under economic, political, and cultural oppression? 
that is a perspective. That is a, a, a way of approaching your journalism. But, but it really doesn't sound like, yeah, distance or objectivity or detachment. It sounds like crusading. You know, and I think it, it becomes a matter of opinion what you decide is oppression. It seems to me like here she's sort of describing, I want to move somewhere where everybody looks like me. That somehow, if you're not in Chocolate City, if you're maybe in a whiter suburb, you're oppressed. This is sometimes hard for somebody like me to understand because, yes, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin that was 99% white or 100% sometimes, I imagine. We would occasionally have, we had some refugees from Southeast Asia. You know, I had, a, I had a black girl in my high school class for a couple of years at the end. But generally, we didn't, yeah, we, did, we had a, a, a nearly all-white experience. Now, we had that, there was something much different on the radio and on TV. But I can see what she's saying. So to me, when I try to think about this, I think about, yeah, sometimes being on the metro in the District of Columbia... And feeling like, oh, I'm a minority in this train car. It didn't make me scared, but I can see where you would feel, you know, at odds with what was, you know, the majority. I understand that. Later, when I would ride on the metro with my wife, you know, there's little jokes that my college roommate used to, to say. And he would just used to say, I'm bored. B-O-W-D, bored. <laughs> now, I... <laughs> I don't necessarily think of that as a black thing. That could also be a, a southern white thing. It sounds more like a southern white thing to me. I'm bored. Um, but she certainly didn't want me to say that on the subway train. Okay. So it's like, yes, learn not to say anything that could be misconstrued. Um, also, though, you know, when my wife and I went on our 25th wedding anniversary, we did a cruise um of the Mediterranean which is basically the best trip I've ever had but we were we were in Istanbul on a Sunday and there was really nothing dangerous there in Istanbul but there's something about being in a Muslim country on on a Sunday and it just makes you feel like I am in an alien place I didn't try to go to church in Istanbul you could do that on the boat but you know at least it it was a small moment for me you know, you're touring the Blue Mosque and you're wearing shorts and they're like, no, you have to put on these pant legs because somehow your 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 legs are indecent, you know. OK, whatever. Um, it was an interesting historical thing to see. But it just makes you, you know, it does make you think, you know, yes, if I was living in Ghana, I would probably feel like I'm in the minority. I don't know whether I would define that. As oppression, I mean, obviously there are other forms than just feeling a certain way. Back to Deneen and journalism. At the Washington Post, she writes, I covered protests across the country in the wake of police shootings and mass shootings of black people. In 2015, I reported on the fatal shootings of nine black people in Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. Dylan Roof had been welcomed by church members for a prayer meeting spent more than an hour praying with them before he pulled out a pistol and opened fire. They're here again. An absolute horror show. The problem, though, is it's the whole idea that somehow these sorts of moments are, you know, define America. 
this is where, yes, the Bloods and the Crips shooting each other, the, 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 the shootings every weekend in Chicago, that's somehow not the black experience. It's not the part, I guess, that has political use. So in this article, she discusses other black Americans that have been moving to Africa, the movement of it. This is where that gets funny, where you might say, is this where white supremacists and, and blacks like Deneen Brown are going to see eye to eye? Yes, please go back to Africa. You know, when we were in the Lincoln Museum this summer and, and we saw that some of Lincoln's cabinet members were supportive of the Emancipation Proclamation because they thought all the blacks that were liberated would go back to Africa or maybe to Central America. You know, you can see where real racists would be like, yes, please go back to Africa. That would be lovely. But she's basically talking about, you know, people who've who've discovered South Africa or who go back to the, the places where they figured their ancestors come from. Um, again, hey, it's a free country, you know, love it or leave it. I mean, that's sort of what comes up too, right? That whole America love it or leave it thing. It's like you're free to leave it. You know, people, uh, you know, people who love America would absolutely say that. People who think America is is a terrific country that overcame a legacy of racism. She, Deneen writes, the more I watched, the more I reported, the more I researched history, the more I intense my thoughts were about leaving. And yet I kept recalling an interview I conducted for my college newspaper when I covered student protests against the apartheid regime in South Africa. I asked a graduate student from South Africa why he did not move to another country rather than try to fight the entrenched racist regime of the Europeans who had settled along the southern tip of Africa in the 17th century. When a snake is in your house, he told me, you don't leave the house, you kill the snake. It was a perfect quote to explain the fight against apartheid. Is it really the perfect metaphor? Because it sounds like you don't move, you kill the white racist. That's what it, that's if, or is this, you're saying the snake is racism. It, that's an interesting thing. She says, I turned this over in the recesses of my mind for three decades. Finally, I decided the difference between the graduate student and me is his people were indigenous to South Africa. It was the minority government that had come and claimed the land. In America, the fight was different. Black people were not indigenous to their, this land. They were kidnapped, trafficked, and brought here in chains. I realized I'd rather leave than try to kill the snake. The last paragraph of this article, I always say racism is like being hit with an invisible two-by-four. You can't see the board, but the impact is just the same. It hurts. That moment further cemented my plan. I would return to Africa, to the Black Rivers calling my name. Then I turned to the back, and there's an article by Damon Young. Damon Young uh, replaced the uh, yuck-yuck comedian Gene Weingarten on the back page. It's the inside of the cover, the back cover of the, New of the Washington Post magazine. Uh, this is one of his more political columns. Uh, sometimes he just writes about his growing up or culture in general, but this one is an attack on Christopher Rufo. 
he talks about coded language and says, I've lost count of how many different euphemisms are used to describe, well, me. The newest edition of this glossary is CRT. You have black teachers? That's CRT. Black authors in your curriculum? CRT. You happen to teach a version of American history that doesn't capitulate to the concept of American exceptionalism? CRT. Soon, CRT will be given sentience. Cops will stop and frisk CRT and will plant guns on it when the search is clean. Parents will take their children out of schools, fearing that CRT will ask their daughters to the prom. What? He says, absurd as this might seem, there's an insidious intentionality behind it. The white anxiety about this obscure legal terminology was mostly invented and exacerbated by Christopher Rufo, a conservative activist who rightly thought that creating a CRT boogeyman was an effective way to galvanize white parents by putting a name to their fear of the decentering of whiteness in America. The decentering of whiteness. Yeah, this is your Washington Post. We'll wait and see when Jeff Bezos dissenters the whiteness at the Washington Post. Right there at the top. Continents have formed in less time than it would take for that dissentering to happen. But things like time and reality don't seem to matter to the white parents distraught about Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's pretty weird in a sentence to say that you're either down with Nicole Hannah-Jones or you're not down with reality. Liberal historians have taken offense at Nicole Hannah-Jones and her 1619 narratives. But this is where we are. You know, it's not really about reality. It's about whose side are you on? He complains for paragraphs about the use of the word woke and how it's been changed to be a bad thing or to be about black leftists. But now I'm mostly interested in what's next. The dog whistle glossary updates every five years or so. Words are retired. When was the last time you heard ghetto? When Elvis Presley sang it. In the ghetto. New contenders emerge every year. Anti-blackness is limitless. So the pool of candidates to indicate the presence of black people is bottomless. See, this is the kind of thing that black activists like Deneen Brown and Damon Young do not get. And that is they don't understand the toxicity of constantly saying to white people, you don't like black people. You don't want black people to be present. That happens to be false with most of us. A large majority of us, I would guess. The fight over critical race theory in schools is the idea that it's a public school and that parents are allowed to have some say in what the curriculum is. And parents have a right to object if their white kids come home and cry because they're part of a systemic racism problem. And the teachers that do that are like, no, good, that's what they deserve. They should cry over their white guilt. That's what our education is all about. I'd like to hear them say that out loud. And of course, when it comes to lingo, he just thinks, you know, maybe we should go back to the source material where racists don't have to twist themselves into bigoted little knots in, in terminology. 
Just say the N-word with your chest. Wait, that's too offensive, too explosive, too dangerous to say in public? Whatever. Who's the snowflake now? That is your Washington Post magazine. It is woke. To define the term, it defines the term. Speaking of woke, uh, we found here the latest uh, issue of Cosmopolitan magazine. It's a little bit slutty and a little bit smutty, but it has, this is supposedly the mental health issue of Cosmopolitan. I did a little item on Newsbusters about Vice President Kamala Harris on the future of mental wellness. Yes, that was just basically a very dry, boring press release about how Biden-Harris cares about mental health. Oh, and Kamala preserves her mental health by spending a half hour each morning on the elliptical. But with today's theme on the podcast, this was the two pages I wanted to focus on. It's the advice column with therapist Mina B. She's a therapist, writer, and speaker and the founder of Mina B. Consulting. The headline on this is, My parents don't think they're racist. I know better. What do I do? Oh, this ought to be good. Dear Mina, recently I've been struggling with the racist views of my white family. My boomer parents fail to understand the anti-racist movement and our relationship has become strained because of it. I've found that I can't talk to them without correcting their racist language or getting into a fight about what equal opportunity really means for disenfranchised groups. In 2020, during the height of the BLM protests and riots, my parents would often go off about how trigger warning, she wrote the trigger warning. I'm not throwing that in. She's throwing that in. The, quote, rioters are burning down their own neighborhoods, and if they don't care about their own people, homes, businesses, or streets, then why should we care about them? All right, that's put a little rudely, but there's a point there. She seems to be underlining that they weren't just protests. It was called burning down your neighborhood, burning down the CVS, burning down the barbershop, or burning down somebody else's furniture store. But she continues, as a millennial who has educated myself on how systemic racism works, I know this logic is flawed and problematic. But whenever I try to correct them or explain where their outlook is just plain wrong, they turn it into a debate. It doesn't feel like they're even listening to what I have to say. This is what we don't like about millennials. Yes, when I debate you, when I challenge your assumptions, yes, you're, we're not allowed. This is, this is the advice column in a woke magazine. Why doesn't everybody just surrender to my logic? You're not allowed to debate me. We don't need to have a democracy. You're supposed to just agree with me. It's very, that's wokeness all over the place. Then again, although my parents have some pretty effed up views on systemic racism, like whether it even exists, 
Yes, I would kind of like to listen to this debate go back and forth just to see how much I sound like her parents. Now, she says, our relationship's relatively calm. They've always been supportive of me. They've been proud of all the things I've accomplished but thus far. But as the upcoming midterm elections, police violence cases and anti-woke legislation continue to make headlines, it's hard to avoid talking about racism altogether. Is there any way to get through to them to change their perspective? Or is my relationship with them doomed forever? Now, this is a very interesting topic because this is the other thing about millennials that can be annoying. And that is, why do you insist that your parents have to agree with you on everything? That you went to college or something or you read a lot of liberal Twitter and you expect that your parents should just come around or else your relationship is doomed? This where I come at this as a parent and I want to say, I want to listen to your point of view. I want to listen to your anger at George Floyd. I want to listen to whatever you think Black Lives Matter is. But then to turn around and say, my parents are effed up and whatever. It's like, um, I raised you. I put you through college. You know, that it, this is where the millennials, it's like, why don't you have just an ounce of gratitude before you go to a, you write into Cosmopolitan magazine that your parents are effed up racists. Well, that isn't the only readable part here. Then we have to get to Mina's response. Dear reader, you ask if your relationship is doomed because you can't get through to your parents. But that question suggests you need to take on the responsibility of fixing them. You don't. You can show up with your belief systems and values and decide what your future with your parents looks like. Your power lies in changing the way you respond to them. Take some time to really reflect on your bond with your parents. Think about, can I tolerate being in the same room as them? <laughs> Am I really an intolerant witch? Should I ever come home for Thanksgiving or Christmas ever again? I, it just, I'm sorry, it seems to me that if you're just saying, I deny that systemic racism exists, I think this country's done a great job in fighting racism. We've, we had a black man as president, we have a black woman on the Supreme Court, la la la, they hate that. Or yes, as we've stated earlier, uh, you know, the biggest threat to black lives is other blacks. Oh, don't even start, right? The therapist says, if you feel comfortable, set boundaries around the things you discuss and the things they say. Oh, set boundaries over the things other people say. How leftist is that? You might tell them, hey, when you use racist phrasers or try to debate me on equality, it makes me feel uncomfortable. So I'm going to leave or hang up if that happens. When you try to debate me, it's Triggering. It makes me uncomfortable. What kind of relationship is that? I would dare to say that's spoiled brattiness. Start with the idea that maybe if you're 22 and your parents are in their 50s, they have more experience in life in America than you do. At least, at least think about it. 
at least ponder that one. At least have a little generosity instead of being frustrated that they haven't put BLM on their car. The therapist continues, it might not seem like it, but you have a role in keeping these negative cycles going. So stepping away and reminding yourself that it's okay not to have the last word can help you make peace with yourself in this poopy situation. It's not the word that she uses. And if you need space to recover from your interactions, consider spending less time with them or calling less often. Although you don't owe them a reason other than the whole raising them your whole life thing, you can share why you're stepping back if it feels safe to do so. It can be really tough to reconcile the fact that people we care about, including our family, can't see the world for what it is or think it's no big deal to vote for candidates who uphold the oppression of non-white people. That would seem to be the Republicans. Cosmopolitan, your DNC rag, among many DNC rags that call themselves women's magazines. But we have to learn to protect ourselves when people show us who they are. Unless your family is actively asking how they can become less racist, be cautious of how much labor you exert trying to get them to think differently when it's clear they don't want to. We dispense so much of our energy trying to change the minds of people who are fine with the values they uphold. But the truth is that the person you're trying to change has to be willing to see things differently. Okay, so basically the whole line here is, you know, don't exert energy hopelessly. Now, look, there's, there could be some truth to that. I don't tend to have fights with people on social media who I quickly conclude really don't want to debate me or don't have anything that impresses me in their arguments, I'm going to drop that like a hot potato. But this is people I barely know. I think that when you're talking politics with people you love, you should try to be generous. You should try to be open-minded. And that's not always easy. Sometimes it helps just to listen. I'm not always good at that. I have strong opinions. Mrs. Graham has to say, whoa, 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 my turn. <laughs> or, I really don't want to discuss this for the next 30 minutes. Save it for a 30-minute podcast sometime. Uh, okay. But this is, yeah, this is the status of magazines, whether it's the Washington Post magazine, whether it's Cosmopolitan magazine. Everybody's having their moment to speak out for racial justice. And somehow, the phrase racial justice means... Yeah, you either agree with me on everything or there is no justice. If you need to think about, you know, where is this coming from and why is there so much of it, you come to Newsbusters. Come over and see us once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>